0: Hello, and welcome to Booklist's Shelf Care, the podcast, where we talk all things collection development, reader's advisory, and reference right into your little ears. I'm Susan McGuire, and I tell you what, it's an exciting time to be alive. It's July, and that means Graphic Novels in Libraries Month. Woohoo! This is our third year celebrating with lots of fun programming and webinars and a special supplement to the magazine devoted to the many exciting facets of how libraries use graphic novels. I have to say, though I don't have a background in technical services, although I did spend a summer cataloging microfiche at the Indiana University Government Documents Library, so I'm kind of an expert. Anyway, I'm always partial to the articles that talk about cataloging and shelving and just generally making graphic novels more accessible. I think of cataloging as a public service, because the public is ultimately who the cataloging is for, at least in public libraries. You're not so much keeping a record of what you've got in your collection, though you are also doing that. You're making the items in your collection findable. Findability is key to serving readers, especially because not every patron wants a reader's advisory conversation. They just want to browse and make their own selections. So in that way, maybe cataloging is part of reader's advisory service. Okay, maybe I'm going a smidge off the rails. Am I going off the rails? Or am I very right? I suspect folks in technical services might have something to say about that, but I hope we can all agree that we all want to build robust collections that are organized in such a way that the right reader finds the right book. And get ready for a sloppy transition. One way to help readers find great books is to share best of lists. So I spoke to Jessica Jenner, a member of ALA's Graphic Novels and Comics Roundtable, and chair of the Best Graphic Novels for Adults Reading List Committee. We talked about this year's list, which was announced in January. We'll also hear from audio editor Heather Booth vis a vis what's so great about the winners of the Odyssey Awards, which honors excellence in audiobooks for children and young adults. Then I catch up with my fellow editor Annie Bostrom to talk about what she's reading this summer. It's an episode chock full of goodness, so let's get to it, shall we? say, do you like reading? Do you like hearing what authors have to say about their writing? Then you've just got to hear the Shelf Care interview. It's a quick conversation between a book lister and a book person about their work, their inspiration, and whatever else we can fit in under 15 minutes. Hear Maggie Reagan talk to Ibram X. Kendi and Jason Reynolds about Stamped, Racism, Anti-Racism, and You. Hear Ronnie Curry chat with Susan Mwadi-Daraj and Simon Nurali about their series for young readers, Farah Rocks and Sadiq. Or to Saba Tahir, Nicole Andelfinger, and Sonia Lau and their graphic novel, A Thief Among the Trees hear Julia Smith talk to Tracy Hecht about the Nocturnal series, and more. Can you believe there's more? You can find the Shelf Care interview right on this here podcast feed or wherever you listen to Booklist Shelf Care the podcast. Happy listening! I'm here talking to Jessica Jenner, who is the chair of the best graphic novels for adults reading list. Last year and this year, right? Yep, correct. Cool. So welcome. And let's, let's talk about this list. So how, how did it come about? I mean, there've been, you know, ALA has reading lists for everything, but we didn't, obviously didn't have one for graphic novels for adults. How did GNCRT come together to say, we're going to do this?
1: So when I joined the team back in 2019, towards the end of the year, from my understanding, they were discussing things in comparison to YALSA and the young adult list and about how adults don't necessarily have specific comics and graphic novels tailored to them as a form of a list or recommendation within libraries. Right. And so in that kind of discussion, not only was it like, hey, this is a kind of a void that we need to fill, but it was also this, how do adults view graphic novels? Do you re- really see many adults reading graphic novels? Is it something that they go to? And kind of in there, we realized that maybe it's not top priority. It's definitely for more children and uh, young adults.
0: You mean in terms of library services?
1: Correct, yes. Okay. And, and so there's not as much pull within libraries to purchase graphic novels for spe- specifically adults. And, you know, we're talking maybe about like 20s and on. Mm-hmm. And so, and having topics and themes that follow that more mirror adult issues and concerns and you know worries and all that stuff so whereas young adults might be more of oh coming of age or dealing with like navigating relationships mm-hmm. and growing becoming into yourself adults uh, graphic novels might struggle more with like how do I keep my family safe how do I reestablish relationships with family members I haven't talked to in years yeah you know, how do I navigate this difficult job or position and the, some of the struggles through that, but maybe not even some of the negative stuff, but maybe some of the the more advanced love stories where you've been dating someone for a super long time and maybe they pass away mm-hmm. or just how maybe a stale relationship. i said negative, but I feel like they were still right. kind of...
0: There was a love story mentioned <laughs> a, there so. somewhere. So exactly.
1: Most most stories usually have some type of conflict. So I think that's what I'm yeah for is like focusing on the conflict of the stories and, you know, those those themes are not as we we really try to look for themes that don't have that. And so that's kind of where that stemmed up. It's like well, really what is a graphic novel for an adult versus a, mm-hmm. a young adult because obviously you can read whatever. We're not trying to like the boundaries of what adults should read and what kids should read or whatever, but we're really looking at what are the themes in these stories that might appeal to more adults? And maybe even what themes in these stories might appeal to adults who don't necessarily reach for the graphic novel? What might speak to them? What might them pick it up, you know, and that's a lot of nonfiction that we've come across. That's yeah. Like, you know, uh, stories on history and stuff like that. But that was basically the conversation that we, that I believe started having. And then I was introduced into, and then it kind of just snowballed from there. And
0: Right. I mean, this, yeah, we saw the list appear in 2020. So it's like, oh, this new thing. But yeah, I know there's tons of work going on behind the scenes about it. So yep, yeah. Yep. <laughs> So you have a top 10 and then some additional fiction and nonfiction. You mentioned the nonfiction, a lot of issues being addressed in nonfiction. Can you talk about like some of the variety that you saw either in the list or in the nominations that was surprising or fun, or if if anything sort of tackled something in a way you weren't expecting?
1: Yeah, I think there was one book last year because... We had a lot of like superhero type of theme story, superpower, right. like like traveling and space and all this like sci-fi fantasy. Uh, and most of the members on the team are really, we're more sci-fi and stuff like that. And everyone kind of has their genre that they're interested in. So, you know, usually in the beginning of the year, we're putting on a lot of those books because it's what we look for. But then, you know, we kind of hit a point in the year where we're like, all right, let's look into something, you know, a little bit outside our boundaries. What don't we have? And I cannot remember if it was something that a member submitted through the form or somebody else had. This was well over a year ago at this point, but it was this book, um, Year of the Rabbit. Uh huh. And that was a fantastic book because it tackled the uh, Vietnam War and how this family struggled through that, and you know who they lost and how did they come through it, and how it was written was the family eventually moved to France and that area in Europe. And the grandson ended up interviewing all their family members and putting together this story that almost goes through as if you're living through it. And so, you know, you get a sense of confusion because there's so many people in the family that they like were working together with and lost and came in touch with. But in addition to that, they're all required to wear like the same uniform, and so it it becomes like chaotic and it you really kind of feel like they lose their identity in it all. And it was just really kind of crazy. And they had like a family tree in the front so you can like go back and like view stuff. And so it kind of felt like reading. I definitely have read like other nonfiction books that do that similar thing where it's like a story. It doesn't tell it necessarily, like, you know, a 19 da, 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 da. It goes right. into the story a little bit more and has you... Along for the ride rather than throwing facts at you.
0: Yeah, and he uses like that family, like, here's my personal experience as the jumping off point to explore some bigger. I mean, we all have learned a little bit about the Vietnam War, at least. And so, yeah, using the personal experience to explore a bigger thing and reveal something new about it to the readers. That's a popular trope in adult memoirs, certainly. So
1: exactly. And that's, that's, I think what we found most of was a lot of them were memoirs, kind of just self-reflection of experience that they had throughout their life. You know, so it does have some young adult themes in it, but then it Mm -hmm. progresses and kind of, you know, morphs into this whole bigger picture thing about like who you are within society and how you know, society can kind of throw you to the side sometimes and, you know, how you can come back from that um, and still find like peace and happiness and stuff. So it it was really, really awesome book, but it was definitely like, it it was one, I wasn't, it wasn't a topic I was expecting a graphic novel to take on, but it was done really well. And I'm, I'm, I feel like we'll see that happen a lot more Mm -hmm. because it's such a dense topic. It makes it so much easier to navigate when it's like, you know, visual rather than just some heavy text base explaining all
0: these different people and factions, you know, you can have like a little image and get you the idea and move you on. Like it can almost at that. It can only be told in the graphic novel format. Like if you translated it to just prose, it wouldn't be the same story at all. No, I think it would kind of drag its feet. I feel like right. if that makes any sense. So you talked about like sci-fi and superheroes, but there weren't a ton of superhero comics on the list. And I wonder if if you think that stuff is covered more on lists for younger people or if it just, if the superhero stuff wasn't quite up to snuff in terms of like the best graphic novels this year or if...
1: I think you're right though. And I think that's kind of what I was surprised by. When we were looking at themes, I think one, I, I would say it's a couple of different things. First is that, you know, themes, some of the themes definitely lean more towards adult with some of the graphic novel or young adult with some of the graphic novels that we have read. And so those kind of why we did like them and they didn't make it to the list in some regard. They didn't make it far enough to be on the final list, you know. Right. Because it's also tough because you also want to look in comparison. So I think that's the other thing, too, is that this might be an adult graphic novel. But in comparison, some of these other stories, like talking about the Vietnam War book, The Year of the Rabbit, that one went so much deeper and on a whole right. different level of like storytelling and just being able to move you. Not necessarily because it was a factual and real life story, but just the way it was told and the the way the characters developed and you know where they were before and after. So I think that was a big part of it as well. The other really large part about it is honestly access to some of these novels. You know, we were the first year, so we didn't really have much rapport with a lot of the publishing companies. Okay. are by any means able to purchase, you know, the hundreds of books that are nominated. And so what ends up coming down to it is who can send us books. And then in the other part of it, we want to make sure books are accessible. Yeah. If there are some books that we're having a trouble to get a hold of, and they're expensive, which a lot of the superhero uh, not graphic novels, maybe not the issues and the you know individual copies, but they can be expensive. You know, like for right. you know well issues, it'd be like fifty to sixty bucks. That's a lot of money. Our library is going to be able to afford that. We Mm -hmm. can get a publisher to try to get access to them, to even read them, to evaluate them, to recommend them. So it's like, at what point are we putting this book in the list? Because we know it's, you know, something that is going to be liked and it's really interesting versus all the other things that we have to think about when nominating
0: a book for the list. Right. Is it good for a library? If they can't afford it, probably not great (laughs) for a library.
1: Exactly. And I mean, we got access to quite a bit. And we did reach out to publishers and things like that to, you know, get help getting um, some review copies and things like that. But, you know, it had to do with the, some of the themes, the comparison of the some of the stories from some of the sci-fi and superhero compared to some of the other amazing books that we read. Right. So it just kind of lost the race, I guess to say. And then also sometimes we just didn't have access to a lot of those books.
0: Yeah. It's hard when there's only ten a top 10. I mean, there's only 10. And there's so many, you know. You always find that 11th title and everyone has their own 11th title. So I want to, there were a couple on here that sort of stood out to me that maybe we can talk about just a little bit. One of them was the parable of the sower, the adaptation of the Octavia Butler book by, and it was adapted by Damien Duffy and John Jennings. And also we'll have all the books we talk about. We'll list them in the show notes at the end. And I'll have a link to the list itself. In the show notes so folks can see that when they're done listening. But The Parable of the Sower, I mean, that's a really well-known sci-fi book. And so I was really, I don't know if I was surprised, but I was excited to see the adaptation on the list. You know, that the adaptation did it justice.
1: The, and it did. And the art was absolutely amazing in the book too. And I think, you know, part of what we do on the list too is like, yes, we want new graphic novels. They have to be published within a certain time frame. Mm-hmm. But if there are stories that are being retold, Exactly. Do they do it justice? Do they bring more to the story than what was previously done on them too? And I think just having that very similar to what I was talking about with the Year of the Rabbit, like just having that visual kind of just allow the story to flow in a different way and kind of take you along the ride with the characters and just a completely different way too. But the art was absolutely amazing in that book. I do remember that specifically about it just the colors and everything just really kind of set the mood, which, you know, is something that you don't even think about is like the colors and how that can set a tone for the book, you mm-hmm. know. Usually what's done in writing and scene setting and all this like background and, you know, introspective reflection that the characters do when we read prose, you know, that can be done in like a page or two.
0: Right. Yeah. The difference between blue and red changes everything. So were there any others that you were like... I need everyone to read this. This was like my favorite on the list, or any any that had really good conversations around them with members of the committee. I know one that
1: kind of kind of flew under our radar for most of it, and then just came out in the top ten. If that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. But we just uh, towards the end of the year, basically, what happens is you know we kind of do a rush of nominations in September, and then October and November we're just really focusing on reading all the books, reevaluating them, starting to like organize them in our own heads and start doing the voting and stuff. And so I think this book kind of slipped in at the last minute. So we didn't really have much conversation on it. And then we kind of really don't meet much until you know, uh, December. And then we have all these books that we got to sort through. Um, but it was uh, Come Home Indio by Jim Terry. Mm-hmm. Nothing, I read it and I was like, this is by far was probably one of the books I enjoyed the most. Really heart-wrenching book at some points but it was uh it was a memoir but we didn't really discuss it quite a bit and then in the, one of the last meetings when we were starting to discuss the top 10 it definitely it made it to like the official list so it was there and then we started to discuss the top 10 and then that was brought up and then we all had a big discussion about just how well that story was done how amazing the art was
2: mm-hmm.
1: how moving the story was how it was such a a realistic insight it was about his native american and his like chicago suburb upbringing mm-hmm. between like two cultures world and right how he navigate that and felt like he didn't belong anywhere but he did belong in two different places so it goes through this like personal torment almost it was absolutely fabulous the growth that he goes through throughout the book and the reflection that he has and then I kind of like look more up on Jim Terry and he worked on like the crow and stuff like that which oh, I really wow. stuff yeah so I think that one was kind of like the that snuck up on us I guess to say and yeah it got on top and I was really happy to see that because when I read it and then we had a few conversations and it wasn't brought up I was like oh man I feel like this book is just gonna gonna kind of get lost in the rush of the end but it definitely did not and I think that speaks powers to the committee that I work with mm-hmm. and you know and the process as well there is so many books that we have to evaluate but we really you know sit down and look at each one and make
0: sure are we putting the ones up here that are giving that should get the most attention right and the committee is all you're all you're all members of the graphic novel and the comics roundtable and you're all in some way affiliated with libraries right
1: yeah so we all a lot of the members you know either work with like purchasing or just or regular library uh, mm-hmm. librarians and things like that but yeah and so we're all part of ALA and we had about half the team that was on it last year is on it this year Oh, cool and then we I have new members, and so I'm excited for this year's list too, because there's already mixed up. Yeah, I'm already excited about those books. I'm trying not to talk about those though.
0: (laughs) Wait, okay. So, because that's, I was going to ask you, can you give us any hints or is there anything that seems a little different this year Correct.
1: There is all of the books that are what we call officially nominated. So the books get nominated and then if two members vote yes on it, that means it gets to our official list or official nomination okay. list. So our official nominations are always posted on the ALN website throughout the year. We update that so you can see what might possibly the, be on the list. But the official nominations, then we weed it down to the official list and the top ten. So that's what you see and published in January or February.
0: Right. Midwinter-ish.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so that that is like the, what we recommend. But you can see all the official nominations that we do have posted on throughout the year on the ALA website. Our last update was about a month ago. So I'll be updating it more because we have about some more, but it's There's more adaptations, so the Dune graphic novel's on there, so that's pretty exciting. We've had Wonder Woman, so there's some superhero getting a little bit more. I think we're getting access to more books, which I'm excited about. I think we've also, you know, from my experience, being on the committee for now almost a year and a half, I think we have a much clearer idea of what books we want on the list and what books we don't want on the list. And so I think it helps us kind of move through the books a lot faster, and we can almost, I guess, quote-unquote, process more. Right. Also, you know, having a pandemic last year in the middle of the first year of the committee didn't help too much. But it's it's fun being able to read a bunch of books that you would never ever read, not because you're not good, but because we all have our own interests. So you lean towards
0: something, right? And yeah, towards other things. So, so this is exciting. It's a list just for books geared toward adults, the best ones that are best suited to library collections, which I love. So, can anybody nominate something? So, if someone's listening. And they're like, oh, I just read this really great graphic novel. I want to nominate it. Can they do that? Or is that something just folks in the graphic novels and comics roundtable can do?
1: Anyone can do it. And so that's the fabulous thing about it. And we need more people to do it too. Because we, as the committee members, we search for books to read. So we'll look up a book coming out and we'll try to find access to the book and read it and nominate it ourselves if we can. But getting nominations from people outside the committee is really kind of how we build a, a diverse list. And so that's a huge part of it. Exactly what you said about making sure that it, the list is for libraries. That is a big consideration of what we do and probably why you didn't see a lot of superhero stuff on the list, because we want to mm-hmm. make sure that we have a different type of book. And no, we, of course, above anything else, look, that the story is amazing and great. right. but we also want to make sure that we have a little bit of nonfiction. We have a little bit of uh, memoir. We have a little bit of like superhero or romance or, you know, just, you know, just day in the life kind of stories. So we look for diversity, but the more we get books nominated from anybody who's reading them, who thought it was a good book, even if you're like, I don't know if this is a young adult or adult, Don't worry about that. That's our job. (laughs) We just want books thrown at us, so that way it'll get us exposed to books that we might not consider or we might not hear of. So it's you know we want we want to be exposed to things that we might not look out. You know we try to check our uh, biases. That's one of the first things that we discuss whenever we start the committee is what books do you go towards. So we'd kind of realize I'm going to lean towards these books and I'm going to like these books more just by default. So it's like how can we get books that we wouldn't look for and we wouldn't normally engage with and really kind of dive into that. So please nominate books, (laughs) anyone, Awesome. (laughs) any graphic novels. So that'd be wonderful to get some more. So
2: cool.
0: Well, anything else you want to add?
1: I would say too, as I mentioned about the graphic novels, uh, adult reading list book is that we do have a range of a lot of different things. So if you might not be a person who picks up a graphic novel because it seems like this median medium that is just kind of the unknown, you know, it doesn't seem appealing to you because you associate it with like comic books or something like that. Take a look at this list and maybe choose one of the nonfiction ones if you lean more towards that, but try them. They are very real-life stories that you would read in any other book. Um, They just have a different medium, and it is fantastic about how much of a different reading experience it can be. And it's also a lot of times much quicker. So, um, you can kind of go on a wonderful afternoon experience.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Perfect for summer, for summer reading by the pool or, you know, at the beach. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. (laughs) So please, if you don't read graphic
1: novels, just try to read one of them from the list. And I think, you know, you'd find something that you would enjoy that you
0: might not normally find. So awesome. I love that. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for talking to me and for sharing your expertise. And I really look forward to seeing what you guys put on the list for 2021. Thank you. And I appreciate you having me. It was
1: really fun and it's nice to spread the word. I'm excited to hopefully get some nominations.
0: <laughs> yes. Okay. Thank you. Professional development is super important for library staff, but finding the time and the funds is real tricky. Booklist webinars are a great way to squeeze some continuing education into your busy schedule. Each free one-hour webinar covers something staff can take right into their work. Like what? How's about picture books, or sci-fi and fantasy books, or craft books, or book group picks, or library management, or library reads? So many topics covered each in one convenient hour. Register to watch the webinar live, or to be notified when the video is up in the archives. All free. All just one hour. Perfect for those days when you only have enough time off the service desk to eat a sad sandwich in your office. Find upcoming webinars and archives at booklistonline.com
3: webinars. This is Booklist's audio editor, Heather Booth, and June is Audiobook Month. That means that the 2021 Odyssey Award honorees and winners are getting a moment here in the Shelf Care podcast. Each title this year has a different type of narration, so I thought I would talk a little bit about what I think makes each type of audiobook good, what stands out to me as a reviewer in the types of recordings that are honored here. Hopefully this will be helpful to you as you're talking about audiobooks with your patrons. Among the four honorees, there is one by a single narrator, Listening Library's Fighting Words. One is an author-narrated nonfiction title, Stamped, Racism, Anti-Racism, and You, by Hachette Audio. Another is a dual narration of a novel in verse, Clap When You Land, from Harper Audio. The Final Honoree is an audio adaptation of a graphic novel, When Stars Are Scattered, from Listening Library. And the winner, Kent State, from Scholastic Audio, is a multi-voiced, full-cast narration of a novel in verse that was recorded as a full cast at a table read as a consultant to the odyssey awards i have the privilege of working with this year's odyssey committee but i was not a part of their deliberations and votes for the winner so what you hear here are purely my impressions of the winner and honorees not representative of the committee members or their conversation first fighting words narrated by bonnie turpin a single narrator recording like this is the classic and most common type of audiobook What I look for in a single narrator recording, for this age group in particular, is empathy above all else. Does the narrator seem to really understand the perspective of the main character? Do any voices she uses sound true to the circumstances of the characters? Nothing spoils a narration for youth faster than sensing derision about the things tweens care about. A narrator really has to dive in and become the characters, and that's what Turpin does so very well. When authors narrate their own nonfiction, like Jason Reynolds does in Stamped, they have a challenge. How to convey factual information and remain engaging throughout. Well, Reynolds is a master at this, both in print and as a narrator. He uses his poet sensibilities to craft a remarkable pacing for his narrative. And this is something the best nonfiction narrators do. In the absence of character voices pacing pulls the listener in, keeps them on the edge of their seat, and then sets them at ease before getting them all involved and riled up again. The right pacing motivates the listener to keep those earbuds in, waiting for the next shoe to drop. Elizabeth Acevedo's novel novel in verse, Clap When You Land, gets two narrators, one for each sister who share the narration. So many things are going right in this narration, but in general, a dual narration for two-character perspectives works best when there's a shared understanding between the narrators regarding the two characters. For example, one can't voice their character with a French accent, while the other uses an English one for the same character. The listener needs to know who's talking in both narrators' voices. Moving on to a hefty challenge, adapting a graphic novel for audio. In When Stars Are Scattered, the producer makes several smart choices that pay off in the recording. First and foremost, this book is set at a Somali refugee camp and includes a number of voice actors from the Somali-American community. Authentic representation is so important. When producers cast narrators with backgrounds that allow a greater degree of connection to their characters, it's going to increase the ability of all listeners to connect to and understand the story. Additionally, here the producers created a full soundscape to evoke the images in the graphic novel. We hear the setting, the tone, and the emotions that are left out of the text because of music, sound effects, and production techniques, essential components for fully expressing a graphic novel on audio. Finally, our Odyssey winner, Kent State from Scholastic Audio. What a remarkable, serendipitous event this recording was. Just weeks before lockdowns for COVID's first days would send narrators into bedroom closet recording studios, a full cast assembled in person to record this book while sitting around a table. Kent State is a novel in verse where characters are evoked through the perspectives they express and through typeface and the words positioning on the page, not by names and genders. In print, the reader understands each type of text as a character, but on audio, the effect becomes more like a theatrical performance. Because the narrators were able to play off of each other's reactions and respond in real time, this creates a tremendous intimacy. In audio performances of stage plays, as a reviewer, I'm not looking for pure stage reaction, hearing set pieces and background sounds. It's not as necessarily as important here as it is, say, in the graphic novel on audio. What's important is the connection between the characters, and this is something Kent State does brilliantly. Kent State also does something that's going to distinguish any audiobook. It pinpoints the emotional core of the book and leans all the way in. During the heart-wrenching scene of the massacre on the Kent State campus, the listener is deluged by voices and sounds, experiencing the chaos, the confusion, and pain of those present. It is a shocking and powerful moment, and I'm so glad the Odyssey Award will lead more people to experience that on audio. Don't miss the Odyssey Awards, which will be available on demand during ALA Annual, and hear about all of these books from their producers. It also includes readings from many of the winning and honored titles. This is Booklist's audio editor, Heather Booth. Happy listening.
4: Hi, I'm Phil Moorhart, Senior Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and this is Call Number with American Libraries. No, 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 wait. This is an ad for the Call Number with American Libraries podcast. Join me and the Call Number correspondents each month for conversations with authors, librarians, scholars, and more about topics from the library world and beyond. Past guests Sally Field, Bill Nye the Science Guy, Emmanuel Acho, Kwame Alexander, Roxane Gay, Rick Steves, Julia Alvarez, Wes Moore, Margaret Atwood, Ken Burns, Michael Eric Dyson, and many, many more have joined us to talk about everything from books and writing to library architecture and design. You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search for Call Number with American Libraries. Thanks for listening.
0: Before I get to my conversation with Annie, I just want to mention real quick that we talk about a book with a grown-up word in the title. It's the one that starts with a B. So if you're listening in a place where hearing that word is like not cool, skip ahead. I'm here talking to my adult books colleague, Annie Bostrom, about, I mean, we're going to talk about books, no surprise there. So Annie, it's Summer, it's hot out. I'm complaining about the weather all the time. But I also think like there's something different about reading in the summer.
2: I was thinking about this. Actually, one of the books I wanted to tell you about today was making me think about summer reading as a kid, which always felt like a different thing, yeah. even for kids who love books, I think it's just different when you can I don't know. Like, did we just feel like it was more okay to read all our favorite stuff in the summer?
0: right. What because it's not connected to school hmm. Did you do library summer reading programs when you were a kid?
2: Oh, for sure. <laughs> Any fave prizes you got or treasured memories? Summer reading prizes as much as I as my mind goes to book it and the individual Pizza Hut pizzas. But that was a school year thing. That was a school year thing. But
0: I also heard that might be coming back.
2: I heard a rumor. Great. So
0: thank you for millennials and your nostalgia. <laughs>
2: but summer reading prizes. Can I think of any? I can't really. I just, this, this, this is a brat. This is a brag brag. It's not even a bull brag, but I always remember thinking the goals were like, no, you know, piece of cake. Right. Anyway,
0: we're not here to talk about the past. We're here to talk about books. What have you been reading and loving Annie?
2: Well, Susan, I actually have two July books, so I think they are In the world as we speak, in the recorded version that people are listening to, it's we are the Babysitters Club. Oh, right, yeah, which I read a lot of during summer vacations. By the way, it was just they were me too, and that's I think that was what was I was talking about earlier in this conversation. But the so this is edited by Marissa Crawford and Megan Milks, and it comes out in July from Chicago Review Press. So it's like a compilation of essays and comics by various authors. The first piece in the book is by Kristen Arnett, actually, um, who I think everyone is familiar with at this point. And it's just, it's a great opener because she's talking about being raised in a super conservative religious household where she had to do a lot of convincing to even get to read the Babysitter's Club books because they were not religious. And, And then it goes into this little world where she was Recreating the Babysitters Club with her Barbie dolls, and then also kind Mm -hmm. of like working out her own growth as a kid. And so, so far, you know, I feel like just the first six or so uh, contributions are just touching on so many different aspects of the characters, like size and gender. And uh, there's Mm -hmm. there's been several references already to Christie's kind of like queerness that we weren't Mm -hmm. allowed to fully see but maybe a lot of us saw ourselves in I think there's a there's a theme too of a lot of us seeing ourselves in Christy just like regardless about her her personality and there's something about how like we don't want to identify as Christies, but we do <laughs> oh my gosh no way I'm such a Christy <laughs> I know I mean everyone has a little bit of all of them in them and I think several authors make that point too but like there was something about it she was just she's just so relatable.
0: Yeah, I really wanted to be Marianne because mm-hmm. she was like delicate and sensitive, but and you know, Logan loves
2: Marianne and stuff, but there's no getting around it. I'm a Christie. Yeah, I'm like, I'm a Christie too. I took a quiz last summer when the TV oh. show came out, which I loved the Netflix show. Um, yeah, was, it was just a great show. I can't wait for more of it. Yeah. Can't get enough babysitters club. One thing I learned that I, I didn't even know about this podcast, but the writer Jack Shepherd contributes this article about or this essay about how he and a friend have a podcast where they read one book, one babysitters club book a week, and it's been going on for like four years because in the babysitters club universe you've got the mysteries and the California Dreamin', I think they were called Little Sister. There was mm-hmm. there's like all these spin-off series. And he had read them as a kid because he came from, he like moved to the States from England when he was like 10 and his cousin that he idolized had shelves of them. And he was just like, here's how I can learn about the United States and girls. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) But it's just really sweet. He's like, this is a very silly exercise that I'm doing as a 41 year old man. And I've learned a lot from it. So, yeah. Yeah but just loving that. That's like a good, it is definitely a nostalgia read, but it's also like, it's also genuinely, I would say like literary criticism of the only sort I really want to read at this point in my life, I think. Nice. Perfect. And then the other book I wanted to talk about is Night Bitch by Rachel Yoder. What'd you call me? Okay. Just kidding. The title
0: is Night Bitch.
2: (laughs) The title is Night Bitch and the author is Rachel Yoder. It's coming from Knopf also in July. (laughs) the premise is the main character who we just know as the mother she is feeling like she's maybe transforming into a dog at night like she's like are my teeth sharper do I have more hair am I growing a tail oh (laughs) and her husband is very like you know calm down none of this is anything you know it's pretty crazy to think you might be turning into a dog um, and he goes to work out of town all week while she watches their like toddler son. And it's just really, it's just like really weird and funny. Right now I'm I'm I would call it like a mix between parakeet by Marie Hill and Bertino, which I've talked about so much, and Motherhood by Sheila Hetty, mm-hmm. because it's like this, like, it's like the anguish and despair of how much this the mother is hating her life really like you learn what she's kind of left behind because she had a dream job but the thought of her son on a linoleum floor at daycare was just like too depressing and so now she's like just like caught in this like this immediate need of needing to mother her kid and like deferring everything else in her life. Um, and then it gets very, <laughs> it gets very, the fantasy becomes very real. Like she turns into a dog nice. and when she's the dog, she's night bitch. And sort of after she becomes the dog, that's more how the mother is referred to. Like when she's taking her kid to storybook hour at the library, she'll just be referred to as night bitch, wanted to say this or that. And it's just great. I'm having a good time with it. Yay. I love it. My bitch. I hope we hear a lot of uh, radios and TV stations struggling with how to say that one. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's not, it's not the worst we've, we've seen, but that's always a fun, a fun thing. you know, the FCC. This is a sidebar, but I remember listening to a podcast where somebody from Schitt's Creek was being interviewed and they had to keep spelling every time they said Schitt's Creek, they had to say S-C-H-I-T-T-S. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's hope uh, Night Bitch has that much exposure. Yeah, let's hope. Let's hope. More more books about mothers turning into dogs and living their best lives. That's a great, this is going to be
0: mother dog summer. <laughs> I love it. Good. Well, thanks for chatting. Thanks for having me. All right. Bye. Bye. And that's it for this episode of Bookless shelf care the podcast where we learned laughed and loved about books very moving say if you're enjoying shelf care won't you consider subscribing which you can do on soundcloud stitcher apple podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts thanks happy reading